Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Making Action Happen. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. We have a bit of a heavy show for you today. We have County Commissioner Epi Greco here from Pueblo County, and he has been making the news lately because he has uh, stood up on something that's really just a grave uh, disservice, I think, that's happening um, in Pueblo and, and in the region. And I know talking with other local government people, this is not the only, he's not the only one that feels this way, but he's bold, he's Pueblo, and he's going to stand up and for what he thinks is right. So I really want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, last week, there was a feature on the front page of the Pueblo Chieftain that talks about the issue that all of us are facing, and that is the expanse of uh, drug abuse, addiction, that nexus between how your help, how the help is no longer helping, and where crime and suicide and fentanyl, all of those things that are really becoming serious, serious problems throughout the state. How this, I mean, what's happening right now in Pueblo is, is horrific. So can you tell us a little bit about um, the needle exchange and how did you originally tell us a little bit about what happened and then how originally you were made aware of the situation that's going on with the needle exchange here in Pueblo? Okay, well, one morning I woke up and I went to a Crazy Faith just to see how they take care of the homeless and the cold shelters and everything. So I went there and they were outside cleaning up and we were talking about drugs and one of the gentlemen walks up and he says, well, did some lady draw, left this here and it was one of them snorting kits and I had never seen that and I go... They're actually giving them out. I go, that's pretty sad. This is, It's not good for our community. And so a snorting I, kit. Well, a snorting kit, what it is, you can snort fentanyl with this, and it has straws in that it look like Kool-Aid straws. And it tells you you can go low and slow. It tells you how to do the drug. Uh, so, so what this is, is it's a Ziploc bag, a small Ziploc bag, and in it are those party straws that you get yeah. and they're cut up with cool it looks like kool-aid straws when i was a kid yeah kool-aid straws a clear a plastic a white plastic um card um some plastic syringes with some saline in them and i've just got to read to you what it says on the instructions here really quick safer snorting it is safe to snort drugs that can easily dissolve in water to do less damage and help your drug absorb better, be sure to crush things into as fine a powder as possible before snorting. Insert the straw higher in the nasal passageway to keep powder from getting trapped in nose hairs and causing irritation. Never share a straw or other snorting device. Sharing comes with risk of hepatitis C and HIV transmission. Remember that when snorting, it can take longer to fill the effects than when smoking or injecting. When using anything with fentanyl, be sure to go low and slow. I'm not making any of this up. Keep your nose happy is the other side of this piece of paper um, that is inserted into this little Ziploc. This little Ziploc baggie that's plastic, and now they're charging for 10 cents a bag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great yeah, job, they, guys. Do they charge them 10 cents a bag for yeah. that? Yeah. Try to use uh, each straw once. Snorting frequently and long-term can cause irritation and bleeding in the nasal passageway. Rinse your nose with saline water after snorting to help keep your mucous membranes healthier. And then it shows these uh, a little picture of these saline, saline vials are pink. Use a thin layer of Vaseline to keep your noise moisturized after snorting. Now, there that's all there is. It's not for help with addiction, for full information on the dangers, 
none of that that I think are required by law to include in this. None of that is there. It just says it is safe to snort drugs that can easily dissolve in water. Well, and this is, I kind of want to go back a second. So the last two episodes we had have been about this, right? So we had Chris Carter from Veterans Overcoming Obstacles that uh, treats addiction, mental health, and suicide prevention through health and fitness. And then we had, which will be up now, um, a cartel expert coming on specifically to talk about these drugs, how they're getting in our community and what they're doing to our community. And then coincidentally, I read in the chieftain the day after we do the cartel episode that you find this here. And, um, and these, according to the article, um, and you, these are being distributed at the needle exchange clinics, correct? At uh, access point, Colorado. When I first seen this and I seen the little Kool-Aid straws, what I call them, because that's what they look like when I was a kid. Can you just imagine a young child picking that up and sticking it in their mouth and it has fentanyl on it? Yeah. I mean, oh my gosh. I mean that that's that's not right. They say they they call this education. This is an education. They're educating you how to do a drug. Yeah. They call it harm reduction. Harm reduction to me means promoting illegal drug use. What these people are doing. And that's, that's not right for our community. We do not need this in our community. And I have a six-year-old, but I have a million kids. Um, and what do kids do when they're little? They stick everything the in their mouth. And I'm going to the park, and I live in, a, like, one of the nicer parts of town. Go to the park. What's all over the park? Needles. And if I'm out there doing fentanyl and, or whatever and snorting it and I'm done with this, what am I going to do? You throw okay. it down. Yep. Throw it down. Drop it. So we, uh, you gave me a call um, after the article came out, and I went and I felt I felt with you absolutely enraged by this. But you've done some more research. This is not just an isolated case. It's not just a one layer problem. There's lots of layers to this problem. So what else? And you started really well, doing your research. Okay, after when, this. when I started doing my research and I ran into this, I found out that they're not even regulated. Mm-hmm. You know. They have no regulations whatsoever. I mean, a coffee shop has more regulations than they do. So in 19, in July 13, 2020, they took the regulations away from the municipalities and they're doing them up in Denver. Well, that's, that's Denver. This is Pueblo. Give us back. So the, so the, um, the bill specifically says um, that without prior board of health approval, so they can do all of this and they don't actually have to have Board of health approval on anything. That's why you say, like a coffee shop has to have a board of health approval Approval. on what they're doing, but these don't. Because, well, but to be honest, there's no way the board of health would approve anything like this. I I wouldn't think so. I I know I'm on the board of health board, and I know I would not approve something like that in our community. No, no way. So that's why they have to do it without the board of health approval. So, so what's the argument for? This, I mean, wh- how are they rationalizing putting this kit, this little... Well, they're calling it, it's educating them on how to do drugs safely is what they said in the newspaper. Well, to mm-hmm. me, how, how is it educating people to do illegal drugs safely? I mean, aren't they illegal? Well, the thing that struck me about that is they said, they didn't say that their primary objective was to get people off drugs or to get people who are, have addictions any kind of help, their primary objective was to prevent the spread of AIDS, yes, which, right. which that's, I mean, I, I get if I that's get that. their objective, yeah. but that doesn't actually help the situation. So you're exacerbating a problem here, and, and using that objective is sort of your cover for that. So can you tell me a, l- a little bit, from your perspective, what's the actual impact been on drug use? Have they actually reduced overdoses? Have they done, like, what do the numbers show? Well, the numbers shows that for ODs, they, I think it was like 570-some overdoses, reverse overdoses, they call them. Okay. So that means they go in there, you know, they're on drugs, and they give them the Narcan, Narcan and they're back. But can so, the so, needle exchange claim credit for that? I mean, who's actually the ones that are reducing the or, or reversing overdoses? I believe it's the Access Point, Colorado, and Scarab, but I don't know how they can give us the right 
the right numbers because they have no oversight. They can say what they want, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how can they claim credit for it? So in actual deaths, have the deaths by overdose gone down? Well, then 20, in 2019, it was, I believe in 2019, it was 50, 55. Mm-hmm. And then in 2021, there was 73 overdoses with deaths. They, these were deaths. Yeah. Deaths by overdose. Yep. So yeah. when they gave the 500-plus number, did they give any rationale for how they came up with those numbers? No. Okay. There's no auditing system. No, so that's why like I said they have no oversight, no auditing. That's why we're not going to give them money. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? If, if they call this harm reduction, like I said earlier, I call it promoting illegal drugs. They need oversight. We need to get the regulations back and give it back to the communities because it's our community. And it's in our communities. Yes. And we have to take care of the children here in our community. Yeah. You know, and the moms and dads, they talk about uh, how mom and dads are, it's hurt, you know, the drugs, we have to feel emotion for them. Well, I do, but not promoting them to do drugs. If we're going to do that, why don't we open a rehab center? That makes more sense. Yeah. And the, the harm reduction model, when they set up these needle exchanges, um, it, it was funded by HIV money because it was to curb the spread of HIV. And then they added um, hepatitis in it as well, because that's the, that's like the big one that you get if you're sharing needles that everybody that uses injection drugs basically gets um, hepatitis, right? So what they did was they set up these needle exchange clinics and it's where you could go and you could exchange your dirty needles. They would do uh, a small physical on you, you know, if you wanted to take your blood, check you for HIV, hepatitis. Um, and then they would go through your history. Like, what do you do? How are you using? How often do you use? And the idea was that once somebody became comfortable going in there, you know, five, six, seven times, you, you could, they would be like, you know, I actually want to get off this. I need some help. So it was building that trust in the harm reduction model and getting these people help. But as we see with things such as this, I don't see that at all. You know, this was initially set up to curb the spread of HIV. That was the mission. And I think that's still the mission of how they're funded. I yep. don't see I, I don't. Any... I don't see that, that they get public funding from Denver, mm-hmm. but they're not going to get it from Pueblo County. Yeah. Has Pueblo County funded? Pueblo County funded SCARA before mm-hmm. until you know, things come out. So they have not got no funding from us. Do just out of curiosity, have um, you or any of the other county commissioners or previous ones that you know of um, gone in and like inspected these sites, seen it on site, seen how they operate? Like, is that a normal thing? No, I've never been there. I'm a, I'll be honest with you, mm-hmm. but I plan on going and seeing it. Cause when you drive down Abriendo and you see all these people outside and there's some of them have children. Mm-hmm. So how can you go in a place like that and you have a child with you? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're teaching them how to do drugs. And, and not to mention that some of these sites are in residential areas as well. Yep. And my understanding, they're trying to put this, uh, it's called the safe injection site. And there's this house bill, house bill 20. It's called house bill 23-1202 for safe injection sites. So they want to put it in the hearts of a community, you know, low income communities, for instance, mm-hmm. like Bessemer, the lower east side. no, that, 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 that's not good. I mean, you could go in there, you could shoot up your drug, mm-hmm. your illegal drug, and then after you shoot up, and let's say you do OD, then they give you the Narcan, and then you're on your way. Yeah. St- Staffed by medical personnel, too, which is crazy in my mind. It's just, I don't get it. I don't know where this world's going. I mean, I grew up when everything was right is right, you know? Now everything that's right is wrong, and everything that is wrong is right. It's so like they did a 360, and our whole world and all the communities all over are just falling apart because of things like this. And we got to do something to stand up as a community and, you know, elected officials and open their eyes. Cause I mean, even our state legislators and them, you think they would come down and have a round table and say, Hey, is, it, is this good for your community? No. Well, they should be held accountable and yeah. come down here and listen to the people. Yeah. And you brought up another important part. These sites are traditionally found in low income communities and I get it that they're usually hit the hardest by this, but it's low-income communities, people of color, this type of area that are struggling the most and trying to get out of this cycle. And it's, again, it's like it's almost like an enablist or an enabler. Well, they are. They're enabling them. You know? Yeah. Well, and it's, I don't know if the help is helping. Um, that's the problem that, that I see with this. If they were really serious, if, if you really cared about somebody um, and they were – 
clearly have a, a serious addiction problem um, and they're living on the streets and they don't have a lot of resources, what would you actually do to help them? I mean, if this was a family member of yours. Well, well, I'll tell you what. I would never take him and say, hey, son, come on. Or if he was on drugs, if I had a son who was on drugs, let's go get you a clean needle. Come on, let's go get you a snorting kit because they're clean. No. I would never even think of that. That's why I said I, I don't know how these people are thinking. It just it blows my mind and the way this world is going. Uh, to me, the help is I've had friends on drugs. It's like, come on, man, let's take you and put you in a rehab. You, you really need help. You're losing your family over this. But now, come on, let's go get you a snorting kit. Let's go give you a needle. Yeah, let's you just know, give you the, the tools to continue right. to down the path that you're that you're on. So, so let they're, me, they're using public funding, though. So I was just going yeah. to get they're, to that. They're using public funding. So what about senior citizens that are diabetics? It's hard for them to get needles, but yet we're given, what did they say, like 579,000 needles last year? So we have 170,000 people here in Pueblo. That means everybody in our family had to leak, snort, or shot up like five times, almost five times. And and this is this is important too. So I was actually at Walgreens the other day, and this made me think of it. Um, this little old lady, um, sweet as heck, she was getting her diabetic needles from Walgreens, which are not cheap, right? And they didn't have any. And they're like, "Well, you can try the other pharmacy up there. We have no needles here." And in my mind, I was kind of like, you should just go to the needle exchange. Yeah, go to, go to Access Point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But not only that, if you, I was driving in University Park going to pick my dad up the other morning. Mm-hmm. There's signs out there that says, if you have any extra needles, call this number. So I guess they're doing it so they can sell them or give them to people that are on diabetic or, you know, has to shoot up their di- you know, for diabetes. But these people, if they have that many needles and the senior citizens and they're using public money for that, that is not right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what the county is doing. So you're not going to give money for needle exchange anymore. What is the county actually doing to support, um, and, and whether it's a harm reduction model or, or medical or whatever, what is the county, um, how is the county supporting uh, addiction recovery? By, you know, like once in a while, you know, crossroads, you know, they ask for funding. Mm-hmm. That's a rehab center that we can help with. You know what I'm saying, but not this. No, we uh, we agree. We totally agree so, with you on so this. Let's let's change let's let's change this. Okay, so let's change drugs. I'm just a thought experiment, real fast. Okay, so drugs are illegal, right? Right. We can agree on that. People are going to use them anyway, and it's going to cause you know harm, death, et cetera, et cetera, a burden on the taxpayer for paying for cleaning this up paying for jail sentences, you know, police checking up crimes that are related to this. So let's switch drugs for guns, say illegal guns, no matter how you feel about gun control, whatever, that's not the point. So what I want to start an illegal gun harm reduction clinic. So what I'm (laughs) going to do is I'm going to set this up and anybody that has an illegal gun that they're probably going to use for a crime We'll just say that they're using it illegally. They own it illegally. I want them to come in and I'm going to teach them how to shoot so they could hit their target, you know, so they're safe. So they're not harming other people by missing a shot and God forbid hitting somebody else, you know, caught in the crossfire. I'm going to teach them. I'm going to give them gun cleaning kits so they can maintain their firearm. That way it doesn't malfunction and blow Blow up in their hand and and kill them. So can I get that funding from the County? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> but no, do, do you see what I'm no, saying? No, no I, I do because it's like a domino effect. Okay. Yeah. We're giving them this, they're out there doing crimes so they can get their drug. I mean, you could walk in Walmart and walk out with the TV yeah. if it's under $2,000. See it about once a week you know, right now. I've seen it at uh, Walgreens in Belmont. I yep. mean, I've had a, somebody jab at me. I had somebody pull out a gun on me as a County commissioner. Yeah. Because I seen him still, and I said, you know, I pulled up and said, "Hey, take that back. That's not right. I'll shoot you." I mean, it's just, it's a domino effect that's going yeah. on here, and it has to stop. You know, I, I mean, for the laws they made up north, where you could do that. I mean, our legislators made them laws. Now look at the effects it has on our communities. You know, we have, to, and there's no accountability. They won't come down and see what the effect of the laws that they have passed actually make in these communities. Well, cor- probably according to them, they have studies that says oh, it's all hunky dory, but it's not. Yeah. You can make any studies say yep. anything's good. I could do a lot with some yeah. studies. So you talked about wanting to have uh, some more oversight with these. If it's in the county, um, as a county commissioner, you should have some, be able to have some oversight 
on on some of these. You have you you know there's rules. The the county board of health is going to have um, some rules about a coffee shop. Um, so what I'm what I'm wondering is what rules would you like to see? What would the oversight like? To, what oversight would you like to see with well, this? oversight to me? For instance, the needle exchange program. If you're going to give a needle, you got to bring me back a needle, but it's got to be marked. It's got to be marked with access point, however they're going to mark it. It's got to be marked with SCARA. Needle for needle. That's accountability. You know what I'm saying? Otherwise, if you have a needle laying out there and their needles are laying all over access point SCARA, then they should be held accountable for that. Why does everybody have to go out there and clean up their mess? Do they clean up needles? Just out of curiosity, do the needle exchange, SCARA, or access point, do they have a team that goes out and cleans up the community? According to them, they do. But... uh, According to the people I talk to in the community, no, because everywhere they go, they are like in the yeah. parks. You know, there was a syringe next to my next to my car the other day. I looked down and there's a syringe right next to my car, and I I was like, "What the crap is?" Well, we go down to the city park, and I have my grandkids, and we still have a little one. And same thing, you get come off the slide. There's sand. Throw a needle there. Little kid pokes himself. What happens? Yeah. You just see it laying there. Don't touch it. Pick it up. I mean, they have to be held accountable for that. Not us, but they have no accountability because they took it all. They took the powers to be away from us, and I think they should give them back. Because if so, these would not be in our community. I would, like I said, I'd rather see rehab centers than handing out needles and snorting kits. So clearly, you've been also talking with um, other county commissioners. Have you talked with any city officials about this, um, and what have what has been the response? Well, I've talked to uh, one city official. We're meeting tomorrow because I'm just trying to get all my research together that I've been doing, and uh, we're meeting tomorrow. And I'm reaching out to the rest of the city council and see what they think. Because what I saw in the news that they said that um, they had reached out to city council and city council was um, supposedly – members of city council were supposedly going to go tour their facility or something. I saw that on one of the, right. the news articles. Well, the day that the story came out, I had a couple city council people call me up. Uh, Heather Graham reached out to me and so did uh, Regina Mastrini. Mm-hmm. Mastry. Yeah. And, and what, then, were, what, was, what did they have to say? They don't want this in their community either. Mm-hmm. I don't think anything. I don't think anybody wants it in think their community. I don't think anybody wants it in their community. But if, uh, and is, what was it, uh, House Bill 12? You had it here right a here. second ago. Yes. Right here. Oh, it's right here. Oh, House. So um, this one, House Bill um, 23202, this would be concerning the ability of a municipality to authorize the establishment of life-saving overdose prevention centers safe injection site yep but these are but that's not what this yeah but the, a life-saving overdose prevention that, but that's the definition come of it. here and come to the last page that's when it's talking about and yeah. this is what they're talking about yeah. so um the, so the definition according to this bill is um therefore it is the intent of the general assembly to permit each municipality to authorize OPCs as part of the locally controlled comprehensive public health strategy to save lives and reduce overdose deaths. So that's for municipality. The counties don't have a word say in this, right? right? So the municipalities can make the decision without any any oversight with the county. Um, and an OPC, by the way, is an overdose prevention center. Um and that means, according to the language of the bill, it means a facility that is designed to provide a space for individuals to use previously obtained controlled substances in a monitored setting under the supervision of healthcare professionals or other trained staff. Um, and it goes on life saving support to individuals, including access to sterile consumption equipment, tools to test for the pre- the presence of fentanyl, et cetera, et cetera. And a municipality may authorize the operation of an overdose prevention center within its boundaries. So how is that safe to shoot an illegal drug? That's not safe. So, and I'm, I haven't read all of the language, but I don't know if anywhere in here it talks about um, any kind of recovery or anything, anything that they would do to help people actually get off of Illegal use of, of illegal drugs. I'm saying if they got public money to do promote illegal drug use, they should have money for rehab centers. It's 
pretty yeah. much that simple. If they're going to put resources toward illegal drug use, they should cost. do it. They should do it towards resource centers. So yeah. let's talk about that for just a second. We've had these conversations a couple times with a couple of, of different um, local government folks. And it's, it's a funding thing, right? So we're talking about, you know, some people will beat their chest or flex over doing something like this and they'll pat themselves on the back and say, we did something to combat um, the drug crisis that's happening and in particular fentanyl. But they're, they're not rehab centers. They're just so you can safely consume these drugs. What if funding, the funding mechanism went from a perpetuation of the problem to outcome-based, meaning um, you get funding based on how many people that you actually get into um, successfully completing uh, a rehab or something like that. Yep. Is that is that something that's just completely pie in the sky or is that something that you think, um, I think that's something you're sitting could I, be done? I think that could be done. You know, they talk, call it a drug crisis. They're creating the drug crisis. Mm-hmm. And it's like they're blind. They don't see it. Well, I, I like the idea of branding the needles that go out. And not just, not even the one for one, but just branding it. Because, again, they had so many needles given out and then so many came back in. And it was it was a big chunk. You know, it was like, what, 200 and some thousand that didn't come back in. But then I'm finding needles out there, so I could walk around and be like, oh, look, here's a needle from this place that's in the park. Here's a needle from this place. And they could be held accountable for that. Yeah. They should. Well, not not only that, what I'd like to see is some data to see actual results as well. So if it's coming from... The needle exchange, if they're doing yeah. a good job and they're saying, well, we, you know, that needle went out, but we have like a one-to-one or whatever, and those are our goals, yeah. then I can, I could see something like that. Or the data of how many times like somebody comes in and you can ke- still but keep gotta- privacy, but say, how many times have these people come in? Right. What did we do to help them navigate resources for recovery? What, and have an accountability piece where... Um, every time that this person came in, we gave them this piece of information that said that this is where they can go to get help instead of something like this. There, and I like the idea. You're right. I like the idea. Of, yeah, because of they, having they the should. Like, you know, if John, like, like you just said, Johnny comes in, we give him five. Johnny comes back. Where's the other needle? Where's yeah. the other needle? But not only that, you could say so. This needle went out, and if you had. Again, with the gun idea, if you had a number on the needle, so that way you could come when it came back in or when you saw it, you could actually track if it's making a difference. Because yeah. I think we've departed from this uh, idea of um, what help actually is. So when you give when you give a drug addict, you would no more give a drug addict a hundred dollar bill. Or you know several hundred dollars, you wouldn't do that to an alcoholic or or a drug addict. You would do something to help them get in into um, a rehab. Rehab, or at least make the effort. Right. At least the, make the, the, the effort. Because I do. I've ha- I have a couple of friends that are homeless, and uh, they landed in homelessness by doing drugs. Uh, it breaks my heart. They had good families, El Camino Regency, and now they're homeless, and their families elsewhere. And he's out there doing the drug mm-hmm. and it saddens me just to see that that if they call this that it's helping them and educating them it's not it just we have to really do something we have to get everybody on board and stop this yeah because it is a crisis but to me places like this is creating the crisis yeah and th- there's been a few um needle exchange programs that i've seen and worked with over the years that actually did a really good job like they were very, I don't, I don't want to say pushy, but they were very aggressive in finding people help. But again, these are from smaller communities, so it's easier to manage a smaller population. But it, it was like, you know, out of, I don't want to say where it is. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but say it was a town of around 2,500 people. And they had, you know, 16, 17 regular customers that were always in trouble or overdosing or whatever. And it took a couple of years, but they got all of those people through help and then, you know, cleaned up. And then I think 10 of them turned around and ended up running the clinic after that. And they looked at it as a way to kind of connect again, build that trust. 
but again, I didn't see them doing this type of thing. Their, right. their focus was to get people better. Um, and make them productive citizens of society. Yeah. And they were funded, they were funded by the County. Um, they didn't take the HIV prevention money. It was the County saying, you know, look, we have a problem. We're going to spend some money on this and make a difference. And it actually worked. And it, and it was a good example of how this can work. Well, one of my colleagues uh, met with somebody the other day from uh, praise assembly. And mm-hmm. I guess they so all these churches have like a, a program to get people off drugs. And I guess they're pretty successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going to have them come and present to us. And if that, that's going to work and help him, then I'd be on board with that. Yeah. You know, but uh, according to him, he goes, man, I don't believe their rate of getting people off of drugs and helping them and making them productive citizens of society. Yeah, I mean, you can't because it's, again, no accountability, no auditing right. system, no hard numbers, you know. Well, no but checks. that's not what they're getting funded for. They're not getting funded to help people get off of drugs. That's true. Too. They're getting funded to help people, people. not get HIV. E. Yeah. And that's two dramatically different objectives. So I think that's one of the things as community leaders that you're trying to assess. What is it that, what is the objective here? What are we actually trying to accomplish here? So along that vein, let me ask you, and, and we were talking about this right before the show. Um, you had a friend that was shot yesterday. And oh, there well, was, he wasn't a friend. Okay. <laughs> there's a person you knew, no, yes. right? Yeah. Um, there's a person you knew. Um, on Friday, um, somebody that was a, a really well-respected, upstanding member of my community was shot and killed here in Pueblo in a parking lot. Um, what? And, and there will be people that will sort of glaze over the connection between um, crime death, what, you know, shootings, all of that, they glaze over the connection between um, the drug problem and the crime problem. So from your, from where you're sitting, is there, is there a nexus there? Is there a connection? Is it something that, you know, us pearl-clutching people um, are, compl- you know, making up in our, our brain? Is there any connection? Like a, between the drugs and shootings and everything, yeah. crime. Oh, a- yeah. absolutely. No, I mean that's why I said they with crime, you need money to get your drugs. So you're gonna go steal, get your drug. I mean, if you have a weapon and you know you get what you want, then you're probably gonna end up shooting somebody. Mm-hmm. Or if you're on the drug, you're not thinking right. I don't know how your mind's thinking. You could have psycho, a mental illness, or whatever. But you're on the drug is gonna make you think different, and you can do something stupid. You know, like yesterday, my understanding was just hearing from the neighbors, this guy was shooting at a school. And uh, he lived in our neighborhood, and I was like, wow, I just close to home now. Yeah. Yeah. So from the perspective, and it was something that, because uh, we have the academy um, tomorrow, and, and uh, your, um, your colleague, Garrison Ortiz, is going to be the instructor, and he's talking about uh, local government. And what I asked him to, and he's not, it's too big of a question, but one of the things I'm hearing constantly from um, our local our local government uh, folks from around the Action 22 footprint is, we don't know how to budget for the rise in crime, mm-hmm. homelessness, drug addiction. So when you guys are sitting down, um, what are you looking at? And, and so ultimately... Um, in discussion with Garrison, we decided that we couldn't address this because nobody know nobody knows what to do with this. Local governments don't know what or how to do this, how to prepare themselves. So when they're looking at their budget from year to year, how do you how do you account for what you're going to have to put out as far as um, funding to just keep things safe, trying to do your best, trying to get people off of this, and then the crime. You really don't know how to budget, because I just got on a committee for the homelessness, and I asked the question, well, how many homeless are really out there? Because when I was at the DA's office, I remember going to the river bottom, you know, if we were looking for a a victim or a witness, uh, just seeing all the homeless down there, there was a bunch, but there was real no no real numbers. So I asked them that question. They, they really don't have a real number. So you really don't know how to budget for things like that. It's kind yeah. of, it is, it's kind of hard. I mean, I went to the Chile Frijole and I, they had this balloons that, you know, these, you get to go fly up in the balloon. Oh, so yeah. I went up and we had landed up flying over 
the Fountain Creek. Oh yeah. And I seen all, I seen all the homelessness. I mean, the camps, and I was like, my goodness. Yeah. It was bad. You didn't really, you didn't I, really see until no, you were up right. in the air. But here on the river bottom down here, I went down looking for victims and stuff like that, witnesses. But just finding the balloon and seeing it, I was like, wow. It's pretty scary. Even under the bridges. I mean, I was on I-25 the other day and seen them on I-25 right there by Northern. Yeah. Just crazy. Just living under the bridge and looks like a little home and trash all over. And, yeah. Yeah. You know. it's. it's a, I've heard numbers between, it varies in the thousands. It's like we have, you know, a thousand homeless people in Pueblo County. And then I've heard we've had over 5,000 homeless people in Pueblo County. Um, I know on the veteran side of it at one time they said there were 121, but then we had like 280 sign up for benefits from Pueblo County. So it's a hard number to come up with. Um, and you really do have to get in a balloon and fly over to no, see it. And but I, you I, have I was shocked to. to see it, but not only that, there's children now. Yeah. Yeah. And that's sad, you know? Yeah. You know, there's children, you know, I was a foster parent, uh, point of my life, me and my wife and just seeing the children being homeless now, it's like, yeah. what's going on here? Yeah. You know, is it they learn it from their parents, going back and forth? I mean, I don't know. So one of the numbers I recently read, and I think it was in the Denver Post, um, they were talking about um, since everybody's gone back to school post-COVID, there's 9,000 children statewide that they aren't, that are unaccounted for, who are you know, not re-registered in school anywhere, mm-hmm. not on online school or anything like that. 9,000 kids um, state, just in the state of Colorado. Uh, um, and that's an alarming number in and of itself. So we like to try to um, <laughs> finish the, on our... Yeah. This uh, is the third podcast in a row where it's like... Well, and I haven't oh, done the other man. two. I know, Brian's done <laughs> the like, previous two. And we need a good of, story. We need We need a good story. So... So what I'm going to ask of you is um, if money wasn't an issue, if you had all the, the control um, to do however you want, what are what is a, a, a solution or if you have, uh, you know, a couple of solutions? And then, and then will you finish it with this was a, a success story, um, you know, that I feel really good. Like we did something as a county and it's made a difference. So. So c- give me a solution. What do you think? What do you think is a solution for for exactly what you're facing? And you've done your research here. You've got tons of information here. It is overwhelming. I feel a little emotional about it. Well, it's just, to me, uh, they need to have some accountability, mm-hmm. big accountability, and they have to give it back the power back to the municipalities be- because, like I said, when I did all this research, I didn't know that they weren't held accountable for nothing other than they're getting their public funding and. I can't see public funding being spent on promoting illegal drug use. And like I said, if we could do, and we had the numbers and we had the money and the state's got the money to help, like I said, having their needles marked, that's that's accountability. Mm-hmm. Uh, keeping track of the people that are taking the needles. You take five, okay, you can bring this back, and it's out there. Somebody's got to be held accountable. Uh other than that, I, I'm still doing all my research. You know, I'm calling other commissioners and seeing what, if how they're going in their counties. How about doing things? So, this just came out. I, I've been researching this for about three weeks now, mm-hmm. and there's still more out there that I'm trying to learn. And well, we're going to sure help you something. with the getting finding out what other county commissioners in the region are feeling about this. I can tell you, I we've <laughs> already talked with some of them, and they're. Um, and not just them, but mayors as well, and they're hot about this. So we'll help you get some more of. Well, I've talked to a commissioner this morning. He we connected, and we talked about this house bill, and he, he he's totally against that too. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. So, and I'm sure some of our our county commissioners will feel the same. I think about I think that. it's um, important to say too, for at least the Action Twenty Two region, this is not a, a political party issue. This is not a Democrat. No. This is not Republican. Yeah. This is unaffiliated. This is kind of like. Everybody's together on this one. And we have to be. Mm-hmm. You know, this is our community. We love it, and we want to see Pueblo move forward in a positive way. But seeing things like this, like I said, in Denver yeah. and Seattle, I mean. So Denver looks like this. Seattle looks like this. And they all have the same programs and yeah. that are in our community. The, they're the same programs, and I don't know how this is actually helping anyone 
So give me a positive story, something like you feel like, okay, there's light at the end of the tunnel. We're, we're all going to be okay. There's, we just have to keep working together. Light at the end of the tunnel for me is like you just said, all of us being together, working together, and making this happen. Don't just sweep it under the carpet. Mm-hmm. To me, that's going to be a positive outcome because I'm not going to stop until I get this done. I'm going to continue. Uh, like I said, you can't even go downtown and see things that are happening. You know, I grew up in a positive environment. I'm trying to stay positive, but this is not positive, but I'm going to try my darnest to make this be a good outcome. So, Epi, I know that um, you have gotten some political pushback, um, <laughs> and it's not just on this, um, but you're, you are so Pueblo, and you're bold about it, and, and it doesn't, it's not fearful um, you know, you're not, you're not worried about it. It's, you're tough and, and you can take it. Um, but what has been the response um, since you came out in the newspaper? And, and I've, the I've got nothing but positive response from everybody. I mean, I've got phone calls, text messages, emails saying, thanks for standing up, you know. Good. So, so and I'm sure they were up. all real Pueblo people who really genuinely care about their community and they don't care about the political side of this. They see the problem. That's right. This has nothing to do with Republican, Democrat. This is all about the people in my yep. community. About Pueblo. So um, I think that's it. Did you have anything? No. Uh, stay tuned after this. Micah interviewed somebody on a project they're working on. Oh, yeah. So stay tuned. Um, CU is working on a project, uh, a PR project. And then um, I think when this goes up, uh, we'll be able to make another big announcement regarding Micah. So we're excited uh, about that. Um, hey, Chad Vorthman, I know you're listening. I just wanted you to know that we got one of those owl cameras and the cutout I have in my office of you keeps confusing the owl. So uh, <laughs> it, it's a problem. We're not going to be able to have your cutout, your life-size cutout of you and Sean anywhere near the owl. It's freaking it out. So <laughs> stay tuned for uh, our next episode of Making Action Happen, and we'll talk to you then. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right, guys. Well, welcome back to another episode of Making Action Happen. Um, I'm joined today with, with a few of the team members from CU working on a project to deal with uh, news literacy. So Cassidy, I want to start with you and have you just kind of explain to us a little bit more about the project, what you guys are, are working on, uh, who the pro- project is uh is going through, and then what's the ultimate goal we're, we're looking for here on uh, news literacy? Yes, well, thank you so much for having us. Um, so basically, we are a part of a, um, a team of five hand-selected undergraduates studying public relations at um, CU Boulder. And um, together, we're basically competing in a competition called the um, Bateman Case Study Competition through the Public Relations Student Society of America. Um, and it's kind of acted as like an advanced capstone for um, seniors at our school, where we basically work to combine everything that we've learned um, from our college career into one final campaign before we graduate. Um, and because we're doing this competition, um, we're one of the lucky students that actually get to do a campaign with a um, real client. So, um, Basically, the Bateman case study competition provides students with um, the opportunity to compete with against like 75 plus other schools across the country um, and go through the process of researching, planning and executing an actual campaign. And this year, our um, client is the News Literacy Project. And basically, um, The News Literacy Project is um, a national nonpartisan organization that works to build a movement of individuals dedicated to, like, the practice of news literacy um, in order to create a more well-informed, reliable society and eventually a um, more well-informed democracy. And so um, our ultimate campaign goal is to um, educate our audiences about the importance of news literacy and then empower them to ignite a movement surrounding our campaign called Think Before You Share um, to build news literacy habits within their communities. Um, And throughout our our research, we kind of um, figured out that Colorado's main target audience for this is rural communities. 
basically we learned that um, there is hundreds and hundreds of local newspapers that are shutting down um, because they're too small. And that's basically leaving places with smaller populations to become more victim to misinformation because they don't have outlets that are um, uh, necessarily like credible information, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, and actually, will you do me a favor? Will you introduce uh, the teammates you have here with you? You said there's are your three out of the five, but we introduced me to your, yep, to your so I'm cohort. Cassidy. Yeah, I'm Cassidy um, and I am our lead writer. And then um, with us today, we have uh, Sophia Steen. She's a um, our lead strategist and India Clark. She is our um, team lead. Okay. Um so let's go back to you're talking about some of how these, these newspapers are, have been shutting down. And that kind of leads a, a gap in where people are getting their information. Where are most people, especially in these rural communities, where are they where are they turning to instead of these local newspapers? Where are they going for their information? And any any of the three Sophia, of you can feel to chime yeah. in on that. Yeah, maybe Sophia. Yeah, sure. So we actually, for part of our campaign, the whole first half of it was all focused around research. Um, we did a pretty extensive survey that we sent out to tons of CU Boulder students, as well as a lot of rural community members. And then we also conducted some focus groups. So a couple of the main findings that we found from that is that people really trust word of mouth. They're going to trust their family and their friends. And that's a lot of where they do get their information. Um, and another one that we really found to be big is kind of the community um, newspapers. So a lot of these places, these rural communities don't necessarily have them. So it's either like small town, the word of mouth, or it's also a lot of social media stuff. So we've based a lot of our strategies around those kind of three things, the smaller newspapers, social media, and then also that really community feel, the community aspect of um, providing information. Uh, tell me more about the focus groups. How? Where did you, who comprised the focus groups? How many about did you guys do like what did that consist of what did that look like so we did two main ones we did one with cu students and then we did one with 18 to 35 year olds um since that is our general age group and then we also conducted quite a few kind of more one-on-one -on -one interviews with uh rural community members so just getting a lot of their experience of like what what does news literacy look like in your community? Where are you getting your news? Um, how do you see this becoming a problem within your community? Yeah. And what like what were some of the rural communities you guys were able to to, to work with? So throughout the whole project, um, we've been able to hit quite a few. You guys might have to help me with name some of the cities, yeah. but we got Steamboat. Steamboat's actually where the most uh, rural CU students come from. We got Rifle. Um, Carbondale, Stilt, Newcastle, um, Lamar, Crested Butte. We also got Kit Carson, um, Nederland, which is only about 45 minutes away from us, which is really nice. Um, Greeley, as well as a couple other places. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a cast a pretty wide net across the state. That's going all the way from like rifle to Lamar. That's quite a ways, but that's awesome. Um, so, so tell me more as far as, like you said, where, where do we see this going? I mean, obviously we, we understand kind of what the problem is, has become, how do we, where do we see it going and what are some solutions for that digital literacy or news literacy rather? Yeah. So, um, one of the main things that we based our campaign off of is that we, it is impossible to fix misinformation. There's mm -hmm. no way to stop it because especially with the digital age that we're living in, um, there's a constant flow of information going out into the internet, going out through newspapers, through a billion different um, media outlets. So it's really impossible to make sure that every piece of information we're seeing is credible. So our campaign basically goes off of the fact, um, think before you share. So instead of us trying to fight misinformation itself, we're fighting the spread of it. So we're basically, our goal is to equip people with the tools um, that they need to fact check their the information that they're seeing, whether that's on social media, whether that's word of mouth with these rural communities, um, basically anything. So um, one of the, or some of the main tools that we have that we're pushing is um, through the News Literacy Project itself. They offer 
multiple resources, um, including um, they have Checkology, which is um, a resource on their website to where um, it actually shows examples of um, different pieces of misinformation um, and how you can tell what is misinformation. Um, and then there's also um, Rumor Guard, which is kind of similar, but che- fact-checking um, rumors on the internet. Um, and then they have different resources like a get to know your news um, newsletter to where they send that out to um, their database and um, basically equip people with tools and reminders to help them um, be able to fight misinformation in their daily lives. And then they also have um, an Is That a Fact podcast um, that also goes over these um, specific topics and specific trends that are going on Um each week and they um they use a lot of experts with that as well which is it's really great how do they like so i i think for me i think a lot of our our listeners a lot of our the people in our area understand that the news is skewed one way or the other i mean i think i don't think that's a mystery to anybody out there what are some of the tools or, or i guess maybe strategies that people can use to actually identify what's false and what's not like because I, I think that would be even for me or for a lot of these folks i know there'd be a concern that of how they can trust the fact checkers. What are some strategies to to address that? Yeah, that's actually one thing that we um, really found out within our focus groups is that um, there's going to be all of these nonpartisan groups, but how can you really be truly nonpartisan? Um, So um, probably some of the main tools, India, do you want to take this since you have some of the um the research yeah i'd say i did a lot of interviews with cu students from the rural community and what they found really helped them and their family as well is looking at multiple sources whether that be looking at fox news and cnn so you can kind of see both perspectives on one issue as well as looking at nonpartisan. um I think just looking at multiple different sources is always going to be the best way to kind of gather your own opinions and gather all of the facts. Um, I think a lot of things, even if they are nonpartisan, will be semi-skewed to one side. Um, That is just human nature. And so really trying to look at all of the sides and understand that it is coming from somewhere. And I think a lot of people also fall short to confirmation bias, which is just trusting what they see that they that aligns with their already previous views. So if you already believe in something and see someone post something that aligns with that, you're automatically going to agree. But if you see something that goes against what you believe, you'll fall short to assuming that they're wrong. And so I think doing the best to fight confirmation bias and really learn why something that you disagree with is happening and learn just all the sides of it and really just don't fall short to trusting everything you see on social media. And um, just going off of that, um, the News Literacy Project offers like five questions you can ask when trying to evaluate um, the credibility of a claim. So um, the first one is, is the information I'm sharing authentic? Um, Has it been posted or confirmed by a credible source? Um, Is there evidence that proves that the claim is true? Is the context accurate? Um, And is it based on solid reasoning? So we truly feel and are trying to push that like a news or a new generation of newsletters that, literate individuals um, that actually demand credible, accurate um, information will basically amend the foundations of journalism in itself, if that makes sense. And ultimately, if we're all going off of a set of basic facts that we've all agreed is true, um, that will help reshape like the standards of a a healthy democracy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that is a really solid, excuse me, solid approach with saying think before you post because obviously so many people I think for a long time it's just so easy to hit share and you don't even have to even put your opinion on it you just reshare it and that paints it like you know you're fully supporting it and you, like you said it just gets passed on down the line um now looking at the research or looking at, at trends 
where what are some of these big social media platforms doing to try to stem that tide as well? Obviously, we hear a lot about like about Twitter and Instagram, um, their policies and stuff on that. What is that looking like going forward as far as how they're going to try to mitigate false news and or misrepresented news? What is that looking like as far as how they're they're stepping into t- to try to adjust that? I think it really depends on the social media platform. Like I know Twitter as of a couple years ago banned all political ads mm-hmm. and speak on political um, areas trying to decrease the amount of bias you'll have in a, on social media as such as Twitter. And you can't get your um, all your facts from that, which is one thing that's helping. I think also on different social media platforms, like when you talk about COVID, they'll have a link talking, giving you resources to other information. And so I do think that social media platforms are trying to get better at providing different links when specific topics are talked about to try and make sure that people have all of the information and facts. And then the other question I I've have with this is, you know, for I know you guys did all your folks groups with like 18 to 35 year olds and like college age kids. What about these kids who are like in middle school and high school? Does it seem like they're already more informed, less informed? Like what are those, like how can we help our young people are younger than 18 years old understand how to navigate the social media platform and the flow of yeah, news? So one, of, one of the um, big things that, the news literacy project does is they provide resources for educators um basically to uh incorporate media literacy education into k through 12 curriculums and and i do actually believe that there was a bill passed in 2021 in colorado where um basically requiring the department of education to um incorporate this media literacy um education into um everyday curriculum so i do think that um you know we're we're headed in the right direction when it comes to um creating a new generation that are they're born news literate and um well informed to where they can figure out what is a rumor and what is not um it's just our job to kind of make sure that um all of us are following suit and so, so this is a competition you guys are involved in. What's, what are some of the criteria? Like how, how can we help you guys win? Cause we want to see you to win. <laughs> um, it, it's, um, based on a lot of, um, evaluation criteria. One of the main things that we're trying to push is a pledge, um, where basically we are measuring the reach that we have, um, by um having people take a 30 second pledge um that t- says that basically they're pledging to um become more news literate and um actually think before you share um so that's one of the main things if you follow us on our social media at think before you share um we are on instagram and on facebook right now um but it is all going to come down to basically we're compiling a book of everything that we've done from the past year. Um, and we're going to send that to the judges probably in the next month. Um, and we're already um, surpassing our um, reach, which is really good. Yeah. Um, but it's basically going to come down to how effective our campaign actually was. Okay. Um, and fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Um, you said, so it's think before you post is the handle for all your social media You're on Instagram and what where else? Um, think before you share. Um, so oh, I think before you share, sorry. Think B like the letter B for like the number you like the letter and then share basically. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll add that on the, the, uh, caption for this video when we post it too. Um, is there any Perfect. other way that we can reach out and help you guys? Um, I don't think so. I think that um, Sarah said that she is going to be sending out resources to the email database um, that we made, just like three different infographics. Okay. Um, so if you want to include those in the bio as well, and we can also put our, the link to our pledge in the bio, um, maybe. 
Yeah. Um, cause that's really where we're trying to get our numbers right now. I think, okay. um, is with that. Yeah. We'll make sure we send I out that link as well. One more thing for just your listeners too, is like the way that we can really like fight against this mis and disinformation is just by creating dialogue within communities. If you're having those kind of tough conversations with your family and your friends and saying, Hey, this might actually not be so accurate. If you look at this, this isn't actually a credible source or there's actually no evidence supporting this. I, I think having those conversations within the communities where it might be, harder to always have a lot of different options of new sources is like really what our whole goal of our campaign is to have those conversations. That's awesome. Yeah. And then, so I would say that any resources like that, that help. And even that list of questions, um, Cassidy, that you, you listed off of how you kind of uh, checklist yourself about the information you're about to share yeah, with definitely. others, uh, send that along. We'll make sure those resources go out to all of our listeners. So I really appreciate you guys being on here with me today, taking the time to do it. And we will definitely be in touch. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, thank Thank you. you so much. This is a huge help. Glad we could do it. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.